Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Today on Good Revenue, we are joined by Mike Heilman. He's a sales and revenue operations executive who spent eight years growing demand base. We talk about what it takes to scale from 30 to $100 million in revenue, the importance of setting up a sales process that works for the customer, not for you, building process for your unique company versus assuming what worked and another company will work for yours, the importance of figuring out your winning business model and annual planning that doesn't waste the team's time or sap morale. And finally, we talk about the serious implications of the changing buyer journey on everything we do in revenue organizations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're here today with Mike Heilman. He's the head of revenue operations, most recently at Demandbase, and before that at Strongview. Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Nita. Happy to be here. Well, we'll jump right in because I have a long list of questions for you, which I know will be really interesting. Um, I'm just curious, you've had an interesting journey, and I would love to know from your perspective, uh, what was most surprising and what are you you most proud of today in your career? Good question. Um, Just, I guess, a little bit of background for for folks listening. It all all started with an internship, totally accidental, was walking around the university campus, walked into the career office, and... It was like literally stapled on the wall. It was it was like a little like printout with stubs you could rip off or whatever. Anyway, long story short, this is in the late '90s. It was with a, a software company during the original dot com boom, and they were basically looking for like QA interns. And so I called. There was only one other person that called. And ended up getting the job. And um, long story short, that pretty much paved the way for my future in tech in the 25 years that I've experienced. You know, since that moment, and in big picture, I did. I started doing QA. I went into uh, release engineering, which is like actually like compiling the software, getting it ready for shipping to customers, installers, all that kind of stuff. And then moved into sales engineering. And then from sales engineering, moved into sales, like carrying a bag. And then spent a long time in sales management. You know, kind of front line, second line, third line, uh, sales manager, running sales. Um, and then for the last six years, really spent time doing operations. So basically kind of planning, figuring out, you know, how do we make sales successful and scale in terms of like, I don't know, what am I proud of? I don't think as I reflect on it, it's not really necessarily the accomplishments per se. It's, it's probably more about, um, just not basically being, uh, okay with the risk and the, and having comfort with, uh, changing career trajectory kind of midstream. And uh, candidly, it's scary. And I think um, myself included, I think there's just a lot of people that you can kind of get stuck in a job and maybe it's because the money's good or you you feel like it's the only thing you know or whatever. And you can make change, you can make it work. You you do have to try hard or whatever to make that jump. But um, man, it can be really rewarding when you get to learn new stuff and you don't feel like you're just caught in this grind. And so that's probably what I'm most proud of It's just, not being afraid to, to to try new things that really felt scary at the time. I think it's so important. And I think you're right, because I think many of us have perhaps spent too long in something that wasn't working because we were worried about what would come next. I have felt that too. And it's so empowering once you get through it and you realize that even if it was, even if the next thing was hard, it was not as daunting perhaps as you might have thought before. Yeah. I mean, I've met countless salespeople. They go to sales because the money's good. And then you get there and then you become a bit of a slave to it and you start to lose your sanity <laughs> and um, people are afraid to leave, right? They, they go, crap, what skills do I really have? Could I make a jump to do something else? And uh, it's possible. Yeah. I think it's very encouraging. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. One of many reasons I wanted to talk to you, but I mean, you're one of the rare executives who's grown venture backed businesses from 50 to 300 million in revenue, which is a huge accomplishment. And that's revenue, not just valuation. So maybe we can start there. Will you tell us what does it take to do that well? And a little bit about how you did that, how you and the team, I realize it was not just one person, but certainly um, would love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I'll just reflect 
on my most recent experience at, at Demandbase. And I guess what I'll do is I'll start with like the startup version of Demandbase. And when I got there, it was like a $30 million company. And I'll characterize this, and this is the term you often hear inside of companies, in particular startups, but it's the Wild West. And it's the, the Wild West basically means there's no rules. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. As long as it wins a deal, you win. Unfortunately, these things are not very scalable. You know, and a lot of times what it also means is like, you literally have a CEO, you have a co-founder, they're going out with, with the sales team. They're kind of maybe even doing the pitch themselves and they're winning the deals and you're getting customers and so forth. And that's, I'm not saying it's bad, but that's just how those things go. And hopefully the business can find enough repetition in there where the reps start to figure it out on their own. And you go from like CEO led sales into kind of rep led sales. It's still a wild west. Each rep is kind of like doing their own thing. They're like trading their own quotes, which is really scary to think about. You know, they're getting documents signed on their own, which is also scary to think about, you know, but the company starts to grow and maybe you start to get to like 30, 40, 50, you know, million dollars in this range, but it's still wild west. And you might have five, 10, maybe 15 salespeople, whatever it is. But there, there becomes this key pivot point and where you say, okay, well, we want to go from 50 to 100 or, you know, 25 to 80 or you know, whatever the number is. And the, at the core of it is you fundamentally have to start to build and scale because in order to get there, you're going to basically have to hire resources. And this is oftentimes met with, you know, a VC funding, right? And this is what can kind of artificially fuel a lot of headcount and so forth. And I, I remember this moment very clearly, but like it was me and, uh, the head of sales that I was working for at the time at the base game, who's now the CEO, you know, we basically said, we need to build a machine. And it was from that moment forward, we're like, okay, well, what does it mean to build a machine? And a machine has instructions. And it's like, how do we create instructions so that we could literally go hire anyone, you know, practically in any department, they come in, we hand them those instructions. And if they actually follow those instructions, odds are they're going to be successful. And that's very different from Wild West, which is like they come in, there are no instructions. They only learn by like talking to people at the water cooler, failing many, many times and finding their own success through basically failure, you know, and hoping to learn from like the local resources and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that was a big, that's a big turning point for startup organizations that have kind of like more or less cracked the code on like okay, we have this thing. We know how to sell this thing now, or at least we think we know how to sell this thing now. It's still a wild west, but now we really want to kick this thing into high gear. And and it's really on management to take that step back and say, how do we write these instructions so that the next five, 10, 15, 100 people that come in here, all the way from like acquisition of business to onboarding a customer to like initial customer satisfaction to their very first renewal to then, you know, hopefully multi-year renewals in the future. And, you know, all those types of things, the full customer journey, we have to write those instructions. And if you don't, it becomes really hard to scale. I'm so curious as you're saying that too. One of the questions I'm interested in is there's a lot of pattern matching that it sounds like you're alluding to that would seemingly help you build those playbooks. And I'm just curious to know, as the sales exec or even the the sales manager doing that, how much of the playbook that you're designing is from other organizations you've been a part of and how much of it is this situation, this moment, this market, this competitive yeah. set, product, et cetera. Do you know what I mean? And I realize it's going to be a little bit of both, but I think I think a lot of people would be curious to hear that. Yeah. So it's a it's a bit of both. I'll generically say that at any given SaaS company, sales staging and the things that you're supposed to do within each stage kind of all drink from the same stream. Right? There is a value prop pitch. You know, there's like okay, there's a discovery meeting that takes place. Now we're going to get on like capabilities presentation. I'll just generically say. It. Then there's a demo. You get more stakeholders involved and you, you know, identify the project, eliminate competition, you know, all that stuff. So those things are genericized for sure. But I will also say that at the end of the day, sales won't give two seconds to it unless it's actually relevant to what they're doing and unless they believe in it. And so from that point of view, as a sales leader, 
or as an enablement person or a RevOps person, you actually have to like get in the trenches and have co-sold with these people so that when you're authoring it, like the people actually identify with it. And more importantly, if they identify with it, the next person you hire who doesn't understand the company at all, like they're probably going to be off in a good direction if the core sales team believes in it. And there's a lot of times these things get published because quote unquote, this is what you're supposed to do. And everyone goes, what the hell is this thing for? Like, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this stuff? Well, I don't do any of that stuff. And then it just becomes like this like corporate slide that a VP shows to the board to say, great, we're installing process, but it's actually meaningless. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a little bit of both. And I'll also caution that any executive who comes into the company from the outside, who basically goes, I've got the plan. I know how this is done. They're going to fail because uh, they don't. Yes, they know how it worked at the last company they worked at or whatever. But the truth is every company is very unique and very different. And unless they're willing to like have the humility to like scrape it all back down and learn about the business, they'll probably fail too. You know, just installing what you did at your last company is not, not a good plan for success. Yeah, that's my sense too. And yet I do feel like common selling point for some sales leaders is, well, this is how we did it before all... You know, and then I think they're recruited that way, yeah. right? I mean, I think founders have kind of been taught that that is what um, you should do. At some point, you go hire, you know, a fancy executive from Salesforce or Demand Base, yeah, um, and kind of plug them in, and they'll just bring that. Instead, it seems like what you want is you want their skill sets, intuition, but also to your point, the ability to actually field test something that's appropriate for your organization. Yeah, I mean, what people with like open minds who are like actually intellectual who can like yeah. get into the problems, like, oh, this is unique. Now I understand why business behaves like this. Okay, well, I'm going to modify how I've always seen things done to now look like this or whatever, because you're owning it. You know, you're not just reinstalling something you already built. Were there significant changes kind of around like the 100 million mark, or was there some other significant inflection point in that journey where you felt like you had to really change as a leader or the process really had to change? Yeah, there was. I mean, you know, it was very specific to demand base, but like without getting too deep into details, Let's just say it required a pretty challenging reorg. Mm -hmm. And this was effectively the merger of our media business with our recurring or SaaS business. And long story short, that you know, those were two separate business units that operated individually, but we found that that ultimately created a basically a bad customer experience on the new business side as well as the uh, customer side. And it basically required that we consolidate the sales teams, sales management teams. And that meant that certain people, you know, were going to be. The, the lines of reporting structure, we're going to upset Apple carts and all these types of things. And um, a bad decision of the business at the time would have been to say, no, just ignore it. Let's just keep going because I don't want to like upset these people. But you know, it turned out to be the right decision. And at the end of the day, it's like the compass and the decision was, let's do what's right for the customer. And at the end of the day, they, they need to have a good buying experience, a good customer experience, because if they don't have that, then nothing else matters. That really resonates. Yeah, that was a key change that really kind of put us on course to, you know, push well beyond, you know, the 100 million mark. That really resonates with me because I do think that is a, a common thread that I am seeing as well. But I'm almost surprised that not that it's not as obvious to to everyone. You should orient around the customer because it's hard to find examples where it works where companies didn't. So, yeah, I mean, this is where executive decision making is really freaking hard because it's going to be really disruptive. There's going to be a lot of people management. People are going to quit on you. Like all types of fallout is going to happen. And even though you know that, like, is it a sure bet? Maybe, maybe not. Like, is this going to work the way I thought it was going to work out or whatever? And, you know, one of the ways that we like trialed it was to say, okay, let's take a small segment of the business and consolidate it. And so we kind of field tested it a little bit, like instead of just going the whole hog. And it kind of validated a lot of our thoughts and like, okay, let's just quickly accelerate into this and just, it's going to be painful, but let's do it. I think that's really astute. That seems like a great tip for people. One other slightly different topic, pivoting. I know you and I have talked about this before, but my sense is that annual planning is pretty messy most places. And hopefully yeah. there's always some quarterly planning and other things happening, but it certainly seems like the projections that you know we sign up for a year in advance ultimately do end up driving decision making day to day. And so I am very interested to know kind of from from other leaders like what what are your thoughts about how annual planning can be better 
more effective. We'll start there. You're finishing a year and you have your first year of what you consider to be like mediocre to good sales. And like out of that, like you've got maybe a CEO or a CFO or the top executives and the board, they are pumped about the future. And they get very excited and they create really aggressive growth plans because, you know, obviously it's highly rewarded in the investment community. And you end up hiring uh, maybe two extra sales force, you know, twice the amount of people that you had in current year. And for many people, I know you've seen this picture, but you get six months into that new year and half or maybe more of those people that you hired are gone. And then the whole annual operating plan is wrapped around, you know, unrealistic bookings, goals, revenue targets that you just were never going to hit. And then, you know, not only are all those sales headcount gone, but all the increased headcount that all the other departments thought they were going to get, more engineers, more marketing spend is frozen and it's gone. And that on itself is, is painful to go through, but I've seen it too, just it can really demoralize a sales force because it's like, here's all these Christmas presents and we're promising you these things. And then it was all pretend, you know, it wasn't real. Um, it was never possible. And so that's, that's a picture that I've seen externally. I've seen it internally. I've seen it, you know, and we hear these stories and all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of like what we want to try to avoid. Right. And, and so how do we get another scenarios that pan out better? And again, I don't have a silver bullet on these things. I'm just going to like go through just some, some topics, just advice uh, for people. Cause whenever this is, we're recording this here in November, you know, 2023, people are probably neck deep in this stuff right now, thinking about how do we launch, you know, in January, assuming your calendar, you know, plan. But I, so, so quick thoughts. One is start early, start earlier than you think you need to start. And if you're starting now and it's November and you're planning to launch January, it's too late. Either you're going to rush and make mistakes, you know, to get stuff out early in January and, and people are going to get pissed or you hear this a lot too. People don't get their comp plans until March, April, May of the active year. And it's like, I literally don't know how sales or frankly marketing is supposed to operate in those types of environments where it's like, if comp plans have been issued, reps don't know their quotas. And in many cases, accounts haven't, or territories haven't been redistributed or reassigned. They're still working what they had last year. So how is marketing supposed to like build the top of the funnel if they don't even know that they're routing the leads, the correct sales rep, or that might change, you know, at any given moment, you know, in the present. So you want to start early so that you have your stuff together uh, so that you can, you know, launch early. Somebody is going to say, we're growing. We're going to go from here to here. In my career, to be very candid, I have found somebody will blurt out a number. And it's oftentimes the CEO, CFO, they'll tell you things like, we're going to grow 25%, 20%, 30%. I mean, the truth is, why not a million percent? And the point, the reason I say that is not, not to be comical, but it's like, well, how'd you get there? And oftentimes these things just become like, well, had to pass the sniff test of the board. You know, because at the end of the day, unless you're growing, like, what the hell else are you doing? And like, how could we possibly present something to the board that doesn't make sense? And so it is what it is, you know, and I, and I get it. Gro growth has to happen and, you know, growth is, is greatly rewarded. I, I guess what I would do is just for all of you that are working on these things, challenge the growth plan. And so you have to be able to concretely tie that amount of additional revenue or bookings to very specific actions that are already either in motion or are going to hit very soon that will actually influence the calendar year that you're planning for. And like a good example would be like, okay, there is a product launch and that product launch is hitting, you know, ideally Jan 1. And behind that product launch, someone has actually done the work to say, okay, this product sits, it solves these needs, it hits, it, it hits um, this ICP, and across our customer base, we have identified out of X amount of accounts that we think Y amount of accounts would be like, you know, basically ideal for this. We think we can get 20% of those in market this year. Of that 20%, we think we can convert 50% to sale. You know, the ASP we're imagining is going to be in this range that amounts to, you know, Z amount of bookings. And like that to me is like, okay, like we can rally behind this. Like there's something that we can put marketing programs behind it. We can get all the SDRs to like start calling all the customers, you know, let alone the, the new business reps, you know, the attach rates on it. 
Like to me, that feels like really good. And I'd feel like, okay, yeah, 25%, like hell yeah. Like maybe it's actually 30, you know, could we convert 30% of the customer base? You know, you start to, because you're actually playing with um, something that you can wrap your head around. More often than not, sometimes products don't arrive or they don't arrive on time. They might come in August. And by then, to be honest, it's too late. And then people in a room in a closed door session basically convince themselves that they're going to grow 25% or whatever the number is because of productivity gains. And it's like, again, I'll be like, okay, well, how are we going to have productivity gains? Like this doesn't like just, I get it. You want to type in a, a better number in a spreadsheet, but like, where is that productivity coming from? And so there has to be like a coherent understanding of where the productivity gains going to come from. And for some companies that might be like, okay, we're going to invest in ABM or new contact solution. We're going to do some new spend on marketing for offline or for gifting. So there could be programs there. There could also be enablement stuff that we're going to be doing with the reps where we feel like, okay, hey, close rate today is 15%, but we think we could probably take that to 20%. And here's specifically what, we, what we're doing to like coach in better selling to like move the needle on so that we convert more pipeline to close versus lost. So I, I would just encourage, I guess, taking a step back, you're going to get growth goals. And I would just encourage you to challenge those goals. And just at least in the present moment, I really strongly discourage companies from attempting to try and somehow show growth next year. <laughs> you know, the economy is not great. You know, and and uh, promising growth, I, th- I think, is a is a very challenging topic right now. And I think a lot of companies right now are going through existential moments where they might even be saying, "Okay, we're going to be flat year over year." Or we might actually need to guide down, and that actually has impact on the operating plan. You know, I think that's real. That's real. <laughs> it's being real, right? It's it's not just this infinite desire for growth. So building on what you just said, which I think was super helpful. Yeah. Part of the question, in addition to whether or not companies should revise guidance, is to what extent is the business model, um, the lack of profitability or anything else that might be going on with it, part of the challenge in terms of growth? And this is yeah. there's a wider question here because obviously CFOs and finance are a really big partner in that too. And I'm I'm just curious to know what is your sense of you know, where business models come into this and um, maybe also what can revenue leaders do to better partner with finance kind of behind the scenes to figure some of this out? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's a tough one. It's a complicated one too, because I'm going to so, so just like big picture companies are racing to, like if you're a series A, B, C, you know, any, anywhere that's like basically not public or part of a B, you know, public companies are doing the same thing too and all this, but in particular, they, you get much closer to the fire as a young company. It's required. If you're not break even, you're probably not going to be around in, through the end of 2024. And so naturally it's a matter of cutting resources. And I think part of the challenge, like, okay, well, great, we'll just cut resources. And it's like, and, and but it's like, well, wait a second, we cut those resources. Are those actually going to impact our ability to even climb back up to this break-even number? Right. And and so there, there, there becomes like this dilemma of like, okay, well, how do we make cuts such that it doesn't impact, you know, the guidance of the business? Or to be honest, it's like, maybe there does need to be a guiding down to actually accompany some of these cuts and you have a lower target. And one of the things that I was really trying to advocate for is like, we've all seen this scenario of you still aim too high and you end up going three months, six months into it. You, you, you lose your break even or profitability and then you reset again, like mid year, whatever you fire more people, there's demoralization of people, like all this, like, okay, we're failing as a company, right? Cause it's like, you get into these all hands meetings and they're like, oh, we missed our targets again. And I think nobody feels good about that. And uh, and I, I don't know, like this is countered, I think how a lot of people think or operate, but like, I just don't understand why we don't build up into growth. And it's like, we're going to guide low. We're going to be really lean as an organization, have as few people as humanly possible. And that's probably going to boost productivity per person. And man, if we can, if everyone's hitting goals at a rep level and we're actually hitting the number, maybe in February we add plus one and it's like, okay, now let's start like incrementally adding investments along the way. And if we see the stepstone of growth, it's like, let's keep going that direction, but just 
the whole oversubscription on things and over committing on what you can get to, it, just, it causes so much thrash and it, it really um, does damage to the organization. I totally agree. I think sometimes people, um, people really discount that ramping takes time for yes. everyone, right? I mean, and for, for someone like you, you have to go out and hire folks, train them, get them ready to say all the things, revise the pitch, maybe the positioning changed. You know, we got to do it all again. And there's just a lot in an organization. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just from my experience, like from a quota point of view, we get, you know, you can ramp a, a fully, you know, kind of mature ramp rep from a quota point of view into full quota by, you know, kind of Q3 of their tenure. Quota versus performance are two very different things. The truth is, and this is what CFOs never want to hear, it probably takes on average about 18 plus months for you know a sales rep to actually mature to the point where like they fully understand the business, they have a command of it, and they know how to like win business over and over again. It's a really long cycle. And it's really painful when you lose fully, you know, fully ramped reps and have to start over. It does a lot of damage to the business. So one of the things that I have spent a lot of time on is the buyer journey. And we've done a meta analysis here because, you know, one of the things that had been really frustrating to me as a marketing leader was the relentless pressure to, to, you know, to offer these low quality leads that the sales team is never excited about, never wants to work. And yet, you know, we have these disconnected metrics across teams. It's been a real um, personal frustration for many years. And what I found interesting in our analysis is it's so clear from the data, you know, McKinsey, Bain, G2, Trustradius, Gartner, everyone, that buyers, even in large, complex enterprise deals, really want to self-serve much longer in the process. And it's another thing that, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you see it too. But I'm, I'm so curious because it seems to me that we don't really work this back into the, into our go to market models. And so I would just love to get your perspective on that. You know, what what is your take on it as a, a sales exec? Because I'm sure you're seeing the same same information I am. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in its simplest form, you know, a CFO is going to want to say how many leads did it get, basically meaning form submissions. And I would just I would encourage say, when's the last time you as a CFO went to a ISV or some software vendor and right. gave them your contact information? The answer is going to be never. Hundred percent, or the or did you respond to a cold call or like right. you know an email yeah. campaign? Yeah, right. I mean it's it, we're getting to the point where it's robots talking to robots, <laughs> right? And so like you know the idea that you would intentionally submit your data uh, to be contacted by maybe robots is not very appealing. And so you know what you're reflecting on is is true, which is buyers kind of anonymously are doing you know, all this, you know, browsing and basically education, they're self-educating is what they're doing and, and they're early in, in the cycle. And they're actually educating, but also making decisions. And so they're, you know, they might be reading stuff on your site. They're not cookies. So you don't know who they are, but, um, you know, this obviously gets into like data and, and your website and all this kind of stuff. But like, I mean, even in a demand base, this is the, the type of stuff that we did, but there's observations you can make. Okay. These companies are coming to the website. You know, okay, these companies are, if if they're coming to the website, we don't have these people cookied. They're probably part of a certain buying persona, you know, and I can see where they're going on the website. Okay, they're interested in this solution, which we kind of know how to talk to in a given persona. Well, all the SDRs or the, the sales team, they've got all the contacts. They know who the personas are. They can start to put calls into these people to, the whole goal of this thing, obviously, is to engage and, and kind of uh, intercept you know, in that educational process so that you can influence the outcome. And yeah, I mean, what you're describing is it's, it's this challenge of like, it's, it's all the murkiness of the uh, process that an that individual buyer goes through to, you know, from education to decision-making to ultimately, you know, selecting a vendor. And oftentimes by the end, like if they're submitting a form, it's like they've already made up their mind in many cases. And I'll just say too, that in my experience, a lot of the MQLs or forms that come in, most of those sit outside the ICP. So it's like, okay, we're going to spend money basically driving traffic to our site to fill out forms. And we as an organization have agreed that we don't really even want to sell to these people because, well, maybe they don't pay us or we do sell them. They do it for one year and then they quit. Right. And then it hits renewal rate. It's going to hit net retention. 
Uh, and by the way, we spent you know six figures acquiring that logo, and we lost money on the deal. So it's very hard to you know have the discipline on these things. But you're right. I mean, the the buying journey has fundamentally changed, and it's important to educate you know our CFOs and, and decision makers on this change. You also allude to something that I call bad revenue, which is, yeah, we don't talk enough about someone is not in our target segment. If they churn, if they, you know, they were not a good fit, this, whatever, all these other things. And I think to your point, the only reason marketers are delivering those in MQLs is because the targets are so high that, you know, you've got to give, people are trying to just give a name to, you know, to hit that instead of saying, well, did that actually, did this uh, opportunity actually deliver pipeline that we closed and ideally retained, expanded, did something else, right? Like we just, I feel like we've lost that um, bigger picture conversation. Yeah. It, I would actually, my advice would be have two categorizations of MQL, qualified and, and unqualified. And so hmm. basically within your your TAM or towel, however you want to structure it, it's like, okay, the MQL that fit inside of this bucket, like this is actually who we want to talk to. Everything else goes in this other bucket. It's not that we're going to ignore it or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll sift through it and... If it just barely meets our ICP, yeah, sure, we'll call them and we'll engage in a sales cycle. You know, so I would, that that's how I would kind of go about it too. So then, at least for the stuff that is real MQL, that's part of your targeted accounts. You know, at least you're pursuing stuff that you feel should be one, and we'll, we'll renew and so forth. Given the fact that we really don't know what buyers are doing until one of two things happens: either they come to the website and they ask for a demo, and we often it's you know we have small glimmers of what happened in the journey or through outbound or through some other sales motion we've connected with them we basically have gotten lucky on the timing like they again to your point they probably self-educated all of this to be said do you still feel like on the sales side of it are these earlier um, metrics like mql still helpful or do you think it would be more helpful to work on i don't necessarily have like the perfect answer for every organization but do you think it's potentially more helpful to really focus on marketing delivering in-market opportunities that are actually closable or something like driving towards, you know, demos in the target segment that are actually asking for it, not just, you know, outside the target segment does not count, like these kinds of qualifiers. Is that helpful or is that challenging too? Yeah, no, no, it's, I mean, I'll paint it just, I guess, a few pictures here. So like what I saw in terms of like investment in MQLs, and I'm not, I'm not speaking specifically to the marketing spend that it took to get the MQLs there, but like on the SDR side, meaning basically the inside salespeople, the people who set appointments, it was probably on the order of a 25 to one ratio for every inbound MQL SDR. We had 25 outbound SDRs. Wow. Which doesn't scream efficiency. Yeah. I mean, in, in the focus of the outbound people is the MQA. Right. And this is this is where you begin to say, okay, well, we're going to focus on the observed behaviors of the targeted accounts we want to win. And we're going to look at things like website activity, but you know, maybe also start to look at, you know, it companies today can go out and you can procure intent data too. And the intent data can give you the signals through the, the methods that intent companies have to help you understand like, okay, this company is researching routers of this style. <laughs> you know, it's a like, great, we sell routers like that. I'm going to start to maybe market to those companies. I'm going to do direct advertising, or I'm going to do, you know, get them in upper funnel, you know, marketing automation stuff for the contacts we have, you know, et cetera. So at least it's a mandate. We invested very heavily in, you know, kind of the outbound motion, realizing that most people will not form fill and that it's a matter of interpreting their behavior, the observable behavior, but also the intent data to surface the ones that we felt were most ripe to engage. And did you feel like you part of why you were doing that is because it was going to take too long if they did actually like come of their own volition? Was it really an accelerant for the sales cycle? Is that how you saw outbound as opposed to, because I sometimes, the reason I'm saying this is sometimes it seems like people legitimately think they can bring someone from not in market to buying. And I have yet to really see that happen. Like I just, you know, I just don't see how you would do that. If, if, if there, if you don't have an actual need, how can I sell you something? I don't really understand that. I mean, to be candid, what you just described is bad use of resource. Agree. (laughs) Right. And so like, um, you know, an example would be, okay. We've, as a company, we've set our ICP. Our uh, TM is, I'm just going to make up an error, 15,000 accounts. 
Okay, well, you don't have enough humans. You also don't have enough marketing budget for 15,000 accounts. And so it's like, well, how many accounts can we like spend on? Right. And it's like, and for a lot of companies, that number ends up shrinking down to 500, 1,000, 2,500, like whatever it is, whatever the size of your company marketing budget, but there becomes this distilled quantity. And the question then becomes, well, how do I know what to distill? And which accounts are the most valuable? But it hits on what you just talked about, which is like, well, if we are only going to spend on a fraction of our TAM, how do we actually nominate the best account to come forward as, as my target account list? And so that's where, like, again, intent data can be a great indicator of that. You know, on-site observable data can be a great indicator of that. I would also be, you know, an advocate of like, you have to work with your your ops team to figure this kind of stuff out. But you know there can be kind of real-time scoring of accounts too, right? So like, and that can combine sources like intent data combined with on-site data combined with maybe other observable traits, you know, because like independent of their engagement with you, you might be able to observe kind of high value traits about their business. You know, it could be the data that you have, the industry they're in, how many salespeople they have, their tech stack, Right. What techs, you know, what what tech are they using on their site? Because certain tech sometimes lends itself to the tech you're selling. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and it also it's kind of a a bit of a mirror into how much they invest in, you know, tech and so forth. So there's, you know, that scoring exercise can really help, you know, usher you know to the foreground accounts that are probably most likely to be your next best customer uh, versus doing what you just described, which is they haven't even thought about what it is you're selling. They're not even interested, <laughs> but yet you're bombarding them with ads or, you know, outbound calls and it's just, it's wasted effort. Yeah. I think the reason I bring it up too, is because we want to reduce uncertainty, which I think is what you're alluding to. My yeah. observation is not only do we have sales laser focused on the 500 to you know 2000 accounts, we then have marketing doing the same thing instead of what I think marketing should be doing, which is the folks who are not yet in marketing at scale, everything I want, you know, my colleague Mike to do in the room is what yeah. I think the marketer should be doing ahead of time, right? Like these feel like very distinct and beneficial um, teams to me. But my, my observation is that when under pressure, everyone moves towards the urgent immediate. And again, I look back at this data and it's like, well, that's just not where your customers are. Like if I was just betting, yeah. they're, uh, they're not all in market yet. Yeah. Yep. And it gets different companies have different challenges too. And, you know, it's interesting too, at, at an early stage startup, everyone's a prospect, you know, and, and like, even if you thin it out or whatever, your most likely prospects are still there where it starts to maybe get a little bit more challenging too, for more mature businesses is like, as you convert and you get to a hundred, 200, 500, a thousand customers, it's like, you're kind of like taking off the shelf the most likely to convert accounts and then you're left with the remainder. And so like the clawing and the scratching of getting to those accounts becomes like this increasingly challenging problem. And I think that's why, you know, as a business matures and you kind of get to like two, you know, 250, you know, three, whatever the number is, you really have to have, you cannot rely on new business to float your business and it has to convert to customer growth and customer expansion. And that should, like, there's, there's this flipping point where it's like, okay, like new business once upon a time is like the big cash cow or whatever. But like, as you mature and get more customers, you have that crossing point where it's like, even that new business team, you're like relatively small compared to how many like customer sellers you have. And that's where the bulk of the money is, you know, starts to come from, from a new business point of view. I do think you're right that very early companies have feel like they have a an infinity TAM, like everyone on earth is going to yeah. ultimately buy this thing. There's, you know, people are not realistic about it. And then larger companies, you have the scale, you have 10,000, 15,000 customers. So people already, you've got a brand now, people could buy you yeah. if they, if they wanted to. And it's interesting. They almost have a similar challenge as you're describing it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's like, Focus is just so important. And it's like the, what, what oftentimes is like just serves as a wrecking ball to focus is, oh, a lead came in, salesperson jumped on it and everyone knows it's a bad deal, but it ends up getting closed. And it's just like, why did we do that? Why do we do that? Is that the metrics? 
Is it the is it the desire to like you get a quota lead whatever whatever you know is it KPIs? It's uh, candidly, I think I think it is. Everyone's got tough quarters. Yeah, and when things are tight, it's like, hey man, we need to hit the goal. And even the CRO will get weak in the legs and go fine, close it. And everyone knows it's bad, you know, bad dollars coming in or whatever. But people need to show that they hit numbers. I've seen it at every company I've worked at, and it just it happens. But I think I think it is important to like at least have definitions that standard operating procedures are all that stuff, where it's like you have full top-down transparency and also enforcement of like, sorry, like that deal is not going to get worked. Yeah, I I agree. It's leadership. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't have that, you end up in really bad situations where sales will be end up spending all their time there. You win a bunch of deals that basically become fake deals because 30% of them never pay you. Maybe you paid their commissions on it. Maybe they're still employed at the company or not. You can't do a clawback, all these like nasty things. And then you get to that cohort of renewals and then your your renewal rate tanks, that ultimately impacts a deferred uh, net retention, just looks bad. And it's, it's going to hurt the company down the road. What do you think companies should be thinking about when it comes to how to survive when the market is really tough, like it is now? Yeah. Just a small question there for you, just a tiny question. Yeah, I mean... I think sometimes people like lose sight of like just being scrappy, you know, and it's like, I think as, as long as any leader, like I think so, so everyone understands that times are tight or whatever, and you know, man, this, this is getting really uncomfortable or whatever. If the leader of the organization, the CEO or CRO, whatever, whichever one is being impacted, if you could just make the appropriate changes that everyone believes are adjusted to the point where the goals become like tangibly real and you can, you can stare at everyone in the eyes in the room and say, we just went through a brutal change, but I think you all agree with me. Like these numbers, they do not look too damn scary. I'm going to need you all to buy in on that. We can hit these numbers because I want to be done with changes, meaning no more firing. <laughs> and, and it's like, you can get some really strong passion out of that where it's like everyone looks around the room like yeah we're survivors we made it and you get some passion that comes back and do it and but the key piece is that the goals have to be tangibly real to people in the company and the scrappiness part you know it's like yeah okay great now you can't spend money you know hiring contractors or doing events or whatever but like okay great you know put your logo around a bus with shrink wrap and go park it outside, you know, the Adobe conference or there's a million and one gorilla ideas that you could do that are pretty low cost, but, you know, have an impact or whatever. And I think people just sometimes forget about those things and you just have to be creative. I really like that answer. And I, what I heard in that too, was the level setting with the team, realistic goals. And then when you do have to do the tough work of making cuts to make those choices and be done and not have death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, exactly. And I think I've seen it play out where it's like, okay, we're done. And then it's like three months later. Okay. I guess we weren't done. <laughs> and it's because the goals weren't set correctly. You know, they're still too aggressive or whatever. Look, it's really hard to do and there, there's no perfect science to it, but I just think sometimes you have to look the reality check moments of in tough discussions internally about setting those right goals and living with them. And again, those goals could, like you can always bring it up down the road, right? Like how many times have we worked at a company and they go, you know what, we're doing so well, we're gonna like raise the goal. Wouldn't that be refreshing versus what we've all experienced, which is like, oh, well, we kind of missed that one or whatever, and we're gonna lower that goal, <laughs> you know, when, when times get tough, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Cause I'm the kind of person who is motivated by exceeding goals. I find it very demoralizing. If you set an unrealistic goal, it does not make me try harder. It makes yeah. me want to, you know, just do something else. Like I, if I, if it's like not realistic, I mean, and I'm very competitive, but still it's like, this is yeah. not enjoyable. Like who like, nobody likes to feel like they're losing all the time. Like, yeah, no, for sure. And then you're not making your variable compensation, all these types of things. And it's just like, people can get pretty down. Fully agree. I think part of this too is, I mean, the goal setting is so important. I I totally subscribe to what you're saying. And I think the other area where this seems to come in, um, in my experience, is just that that really tricky balance between the long and short term 
priorities. And I think, again, this is very hard for sales and marketing teams. Do you have any advice around how how you balance that or how, what you think an organization should do? Yeah. I, mean, I, also, I guess I'll just kind of step back to and say, like, I've seen really, really healthy sales and marketing relationships. And I've also seen, like, I don't want to say toxic, but just non-functional or dysfunctional, you know, relationships between sales and marketing. And I, I'll just, this is my own personal opinion, but I think, you know, first off, as a company, the sale, the head of sales, head of operations, head of marketing need to all kind of violently agree on like a waterfall model and what the goals are. Basically, like what is our funnel? What are what are our goals? And each one of those numbers that we set as a goal all the way down to amount of pipeline created, there's a belief in like we have to do this together. And it's very important that there becomes like a cadence of like getting together where it's like, okay, there's going to be this weekly meeting. It's going to be the CRO. It's going to be the CMO plus probably, you know, VP, maybe even some key managers, you know, marketing ops, sales ops people. And we're going to stare at these dashboards and they may not, sometimes they're going to look good, but sometimes they're going to look freaking ugly. And I would characterize those meetings and sometimes salespeople in particular can lose sight of this, but those meetings are really a view into the future. Because a lot of the pipeline in most cases that's created like in the now is most likely in particular on new business is going to have an impact on future quarters. And so you can have a little bit of this in kind of what you're talking about short-term versus long-term strategies where all that stuff, it's like the reality is an opportunity might get created in quarter and they're hitting pipeline goals, but the odds are that that opportunity is going to close not this quarter, but maybe the next quarter or maybe even the quarter after, or maybe like every company has like their own kind of exhaust on the life of an opportunity. And for, you know, I'll just throw out a number, four quarter lifespan, maybe longer, especially in a new business. So it's important to look at those numbers to say, okay, how are we doing today? Which has some impact on current quarter, but this is really about teeing up, you know, future quarters. But I will also say that really functional good relationships with sales and marketing where it works well is when you have a CMO that actually cares about the bookings goals intra-quarter. And there was one guy I worked with, uh, Peter Isaacson, great CMO. You know, we'd get in these meetings and you actually believed as a salesperson that he cared about hitting the bookings goal. And that's a lot of time they go, oh shoot, we're going to, you know, or oh shoot, we're going to miss our bookings target. You know, he would be all in. Hey, how can I help with like, you know, offline campaigns? Can we ship, you know, champagne bottles to people? And obviously the focus is probably around like upsell stuff that you can create intra-quarter with a higher likelihood of closing so you can influence the current quarter. And it's like, there's just, there becomes a certain camaraderie to it where it's just like, you feel like you're all in and like, we're all going to die trying to hit this quarter. And it feels really good. And it creates, you know, kind of a good environment, a really bad environment is when marketing, and you see, I hate to say it, but you see it more often than not. And I've seen it recently too, where marketing, all they care about is MQA, MQL, pipe. And it's like, after that, we're done. And you get in these like Twilight Zone episodes where it's time to present and have to the company how we did. And marketing says, we're killing it. Sales goes, well, we, we came in at 80%, whatever the percentage is, it's a miss. And somehow marketing's crushing it or whatever. And it's just like, how is this working? <laughs> and to be honest, it's because everyone's not bought in. The people, there's not good collaboration on it. And um, they kind of want to stop where their goals stop. And so I think, you know, compensation is certainly a piece of it. How marketing is compensated. You know, if they're 100% compensated on pre-pipe to, you know, early pipe, like you might have that behavior. But if they are comp to on bookings attainment, you know, it, it could influence behavior too. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I honestly would prefer to have uh, qualified pipeline or bookings, like aggressive goals. I mean, goal beyond renewals, like whatever you want, because it what, what it yeah. does, I think what it empowers a marketer to do and a marketing team is we get to focus on the things that are actually high ROI that helps someone become someone who's in market. Like you can actually do yeah. totally different work. I really think there's no value in lead gen. I dislike content syndication. There's a whole bunch of stuff that like, I don't think most marketers want to do unless they're trying to fill an MQL or an MQA goal. And so I, I completely, yeah. I completely agree with that. Um, but again, it, I feel like it comes from the top. I think it comes in startups from CEOs and the board choosing 
like, again, what do you want? Do you want the whole team to win? Or yeah, do you want me to, do you want me to be sipping champagne when you're having like a pretty, pretty tough yeah. quarter? I don't think it's a, why are we, we're not winning. Like, I'm, how am I winning if you're losing? I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. And something too, I'll just reflect on, because I think a lot of companies lose sight of this. A lot of times in a direct sales model, like a company will go and hire salespeople and these salespeople will be, you know, mature salespeople, meaning they worked at, you know, several companies or whatever. And sometimes there is this desire or belief that once you get to a certain maturity of sales rep, like prospecting stops. And like, so what you end up with is like, okay, we missed our, you know, pipeline goals or whatever. And it all gets lumped on the SDRs or whatever. It's like, oh, well, they, they screwed up or whatever. And it's just like, I just, I think it's impossible to run a company at scale where sales is not minimally contributing to like maybe even 20% of like pipeline goals. And it's like operationally, there has to be full visibility and transparency on like, we developed something called the heat map. And the heat map was like every single rep and it was, you know, bookings across all the key bookings things. And then it was basically pipeline. So it's like, how are you doing in current quarter, but also how are you doing in, in each rep would have a pipeline goal and there was accountability like if you're not like if you're poor performance and you did not didn't even hit your pipeline goals like this is not looking good <laughs> but i think a lot of companies they kind of for, they just they think it's like extra sprinkle on top but it's like unmanaged it's like oh well great you know sales did did a lot of pipeline this quarter it's like well everyone should be quoted you know on actively contributing pipeline if you do that you can like you could just squeeze a lot more juice out of the resources you have if, if you've got that going on. And at the end of the day, at least for software companies, uh, it's all about the pipeline. These are fantastic insights. Uh, I'm just curious, is there anything else that you think high performance companies do differently from the rest of the pack? You've given, you've given a lot of great answers. I think you'd probably include in that bucket. Anything else? Yeah. I mean, don't be afraid of having those fierce conversations, you know, challenging assumptions. Innovation is always important. You know, there are no sacred cows, right? I mean, things always have to be blown up. Ideas always have to be challenged. You know, everything always continuously has to get better. You know, I think re and, that, and that applies to resourcing too. You know, it's just, you, you got to be pretty rigid too with like, end of the day, it's not personal. There's going to be people that step in that door. They're going to be successful. There's people that are going to struggle. Holding on to struggling people, you know, because there's a attachment or whatever. It's just, it's not going to help the company. It's not going to help them. They're not going to make money. You're not going to make money. And you, you got to have good guidelines on how to best manage resources and and make sure that if you do have people in seat, they're they're the right people in seat and they've they've proven to be effective. Another great insight. Last question: What is your top advice for CEOs or senior executives right now? I don't think there's any reason to believe that there's going to be less choppy waters next year. I would say probably more of the same could get worse. You know, so I, I think you've got to have the right headspace going into planning. And, and that might mean some tough conversations about bookings targets and revenue goals and those types of things, which, which are going to be tough. But I, I would just also, I mean, the truth is too, you can turn on your investors and ask them, how's the rest of your portfolio doing? Right. I mean, they're not going to disclose that to you, but the truth is none of them are doing well. Right. So uh, there has to be some embrace of some form of reality. This has been so great, Mike. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed having you. And thank you for answering so many questions. I think you had a lot of uh, a lot of insights to share with us. Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a new show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.